0: Hello and welcome to Tales from the Ruther, a podcast coming directly to you from the Walter P. Ruther Library and is the oldest continuous podcast produced out of Wayne State University. I am Dan Galadner, your host for today, along with the tech wizard Troy Eller-English.
1: What up, Troy? Hey, Dan. How
0: are things going?
1: Oh, they're uh, they're delightful. Do
0: you survive October well?
1: Barely. Barely. It's a busy month.
0: This Rocktober. Yeah. That's what's supposed to happen in October, isn't it?
1: It is what happens for me.
0: (laughs) Well, we are converging on the mass consumer buying time of the year, aren't we? We are hitting November, December, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, where everybody buys everything, buy the toys, the latest electronic devices, foodstuffs, etc. It's holiday time, but also it's ethical part of consumerism. What do we buy or not buy that makes us feel good? And how do we tell people about our concerns about what we're buying? Well, now we do is click a thumbs up and share a pic to tell our friends that we are boycotting Kellogg's. But before that, there were networks and communications. And oh, my God, we actually talked to each other. Now, consumer boycotts have been around a long time. You can consider the Boston Tea Party a consumer boycott. But the word boycott did not surface until around 1880 in Ireland. Captain Charles Boycott was a British land agent in County Mayo, and he would evict families, usually with bloody results. After a certain eviction of tenants, the Land League, which was an Irish political organization that organized to help farm workers, convinced the employees of Boycott to walk off their jobs, and organized the community to refuse to do anything with Boycott. Shops refused service, mail stopped being delivered to him, and finally he left Ireland in disgrace. And his last name became the verb boycott. There we go. This is your history lesson. And so I'm so excited to talk to Allison Brantley about her book, Brewing a Boycott How a Grassroots Coalition Fought Coors and Remade American Consumer Activism. Dr. Allison Brantley is an assistant professor of history and director of honors and interdisciplinary initiatives at the University of Laverne in Southern California. Dr. Brantley received her PhD from Yale University in 2016 and her BA from the University of Notre Dame in 2009. She's is also a recipient of the 2020-2021 Mellon Emerging Faculty Leaders Fellowship from the Woodward Wilson Foundation. Her book, Brewing a Boycott, is about the longest consumer boycotts in the United States history, over 40 years of boycotting Coors Beer. It included Blacks and Latinos, Native Americans, feminists, progressive students, unions, and the LGBTQ community who exposed the discrimination that ranged from the basic Usual ways corporations try to squash unions, but also how Coors use polygraph tests to see which employees had questionable lifestyles or political leanings. Brantley takes deep dives in many archives and many oral history interviews with those activists who formed unlikely coalitions to take on the conservative iconic Coors beer. This is not only a history of union issues, but what coalitions can do and thrive and what pitfalls to avoid. Any community activist, organizer, and beer lover needs to get this book, so while you're enjoying your pumpkin-laced IPA from your local brewery, make sure Brewing a Boycott is on your lap to read by the fire. Hi, Allison. How you doing?
1: I'm good, Dan. How are you today?
0: We're doing well here in Detroit. And as I was saying previously before we started recording, I am so excited. I really am. This, this is one of the memories I have of childhood. And also, I still have yet to drink a silver bullet. So
1: that's very great. That's good to hear. <laughs>
0: <laughs> how so how did you come up with the idea to write this book?
1: So um, I grew up in Colorado and in, in Boulder, Colorado, and uh, I, I guess unlike your experience, I didn't know anything bad about Coors growing up um, in the state of Colorado. You know, everything is saturated with Coors imagery and the name, from taps uh, to shelves and liquor stores to buildings and baseball fields, um, and and really Colorado sort of associated with Coors and in, in national advertising, and so. Uh, When I went to grad school at Yale uh, to work on my PhD in history, I was kind of surprised to learn that there had been a longstanding boycott on Coors. And in fact, I was sort of shocked. I felt like I had been left in the dark in some way. Um, So that was an entry point for me. And then when I was in graduate school, I engaged in some organizing with Unite Here. There are a couple of locals in New Haven, Connecticut. One summer, I helped uh, in a campaign to build political power in the city of New Haven. And then I was part of a longer effort to win a union for graduate student workers. And that organizing experience really drew me into this story as well. So both my background in Colorado and these organizing um, experiences, trials and errors, uh, came together to pique my interest in learning more about this history. Of the state in which I grew up. And then I was really interested to engage in histories of grassroots organizing, coalition building, and efforts to build political power because I was experiencing some of the difficulties of that on the ground as a novice organizer. And then while I was in graduate school, I was able to do archival research in Colorado, California, Texas, New York, and then in Michigan at the Ruther Library, uh, thanks to the generous support of a Sam Fishman travel grant. And I think that was in 2013. So it was a while back.
0: Well, that's cool that's all right so it seems that like we're building a a kind of a um alumni of all the Yale graduate students who participated <laughs> in this organizing i think we've had three or four so far on our podcasts throughout the year oh that's
1: great <laughs> when i was when i did it it was GSO, but now they're local 33 so we've got right. a good GSO labor history contingent, I think.
0: I I think that's going to be another podcast, maybe. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. So why don't you set it up for us? Describe to us what Coors and Coors workers were like before the 1960s. I mean, who were they and and what led to all this such activism in the 1960s?
1: So the Coors Brewing Company was founded in Colorado in 1873 by Adolf Coors Sr. He was a Prussian immigrant stowaway. And the brewery itself, like so many other breweries in this period, was really just a local brewery, like served a very local market of Denver, its surroundings, and nearby mountain towns. The brewery survived Prohibition. Um, So it was one of the kind of the few to be able to survive that experience. And then after Prohibition, under the second and then the third generation of Coors men, and they were all men, um, they began to expand their brewing capacity. And, And in this process, Coors was starting to compete with some big names that we all know, like Miller, Pops, Anheuser-Busch, were a growing market share of like a World War II, post-World War II uh, beer economy, because Americans were drinking more and more beer at this time. But as the brewery expanded production and then distribution, um, by the early 70s, it was, they were distributing to 11 Western states. Its executives, who included Coors family members, were really invested in having as much control as possible over their company's operations. And In part, they're really scarred by the experience of prohibition, um, which I think is a really interesting thing for folks to dive into, the experience of prohibition for big brewers. But um, the Coors family and, and executives were really uninterested in state regulation and especially uninterested in third party union intervention. They felt that they wanted to have control over their operations from hiring to the minute the beer got into somebody's hands, you know, in California or whatever. And so this stance, amid the company's growing presence in the region by the 40s, 50s, and 60s, led to a series of conflicts and then boycotts by activists. So it started in Colorado and then expanded across the company's distribution market. Um, The first big and contentious labor standoff was in 1957 in Golden at the Coors Brewery. Uh, Local 366 of the Brewery Workers Union went on strike in the summer of '57, and it's Worth noting that this union, Local 366, represented all the maintenance and production workers at the brewery. So they were doing things like inspecting bottles, working on bottling, cleaning tanks, cleaning floors, doing work that we would more likely associate with factory work than brewing. Because today brewing is so much of a craft uh, industry, but these Local 366 members were doing everything to kind of keep the plant moving. Mm -hmm. Um, So because of conflicts over wages, seniority, um, they often had to uh, take polygraph tests on the job. And I can talk more about that. Um, There's sort of these escalating standoffs. So they go on strike in 1957, and that kind of kicks off basically another 20 years of labor management conflict. But at the same time, people of color in Colorado were also raising concerns about the company, uh, especially in terms of discrimination at the brewery. Um, And while they leveled most of these complaints at the company, um, it's important to note that the unions were also quite exclusive in terms of who was sort of permitted to even sort of get into the hiring process. Um, So there are these labor conflicts on the shop floor, and then there are conflicts over who's allowed to get a job at the brewery. And so these two things kind of come together uh, to amplify pressure on Coors. And people of color, especially Chicanos, and then the labor movement are both building boycotts against Coors. But this activism in and outside of the brewery amplified in the 60s and 70s uh, because of rank and file rebellion among labor unions in this period, civil rights and radical activism, and then also because of the Coors family's conservative politics. Uh, So the boycott is taken up by many progressive leftist and labor activists both as a struggle over labor rights and as a political fight in this period.
0: Right. All right. So you mentioned the polygraphs. This mm-hmm. is something <clears throat> something I knew about, but you really opened what was really going on in that factory, in Core's World. What, what were they doing? What were the polygraphs for? And oh my God. <laughs>
1: you know. Yeah. So the polygraph tests were added to local 366s Contract in the 1960s. And the idea was that if you applied for a job at the brewery, you would go through a series of tests uh, before you'd be hired. First, actually, there was something called a runner test, which was like a 100 page or 100 question, excuse me, uh, written test that someone would take where they'd ask questions about your behavior, both in your home and outside of your home. And then if you passed that, you'd be hooked up to a lie detector test. And the questions on the lie detector test, ranged from, have you ever engaged in a political protest, Um, questions about your morality or your sort of philosophy of life? And then as many workers reported, questions about sexuality. So have you ever been unfaithful to your spouse? Have you ever had relations with someone of the same sex? Uh, Questions along those lines were asked. And so a lot of workers, and especially people engaged in Local 366, really point to this as an experience that was extremely humiliating um, and, and um, uncomfortable for them. And so this became a key point of contention. Um, what I will say is that the company, one, they hired an external contractor to do these things. And so it allowed them to have some distance from the polygraph test. The other thing is that this is very much a function of the Cold War context. So I don't think Poors is the only company engaging in polygraph or runner tests. But they become particularly notorious for it in this period.
0: They certainly do. I mean, it, it harkens back to Henry Ford allowing the workers to come in who wanted that five dollar a day. Well, you had to pass what Henry Ford thought as being a good American. So they would go and you know they would go into these people's homes, see if it's clean, uh, can you speak English, the whole thing. So it, it it keeps going on through a cycle of history there. Um, so obviously, all this information is coming out. About what core what life is like in the course plant so obviously you were mentioning and alluding to that these web of coalitions are formed that uh you specifically talk about throughout the book um and it's, it's the best at it too and one thing that i when I tell people about the core's boycott is the one that really gets people's interest is that one that ha- the coalition that happened in San Francisco. And cause I don't want to, I don't want to spoil things for people cause everybody's going to buy this book, you know? So, but there's that one, the one in San Francisco with Teamsters and uh, the gay lesbian uh, organization. Could, could you tell us a good story about that or just enlighten us about what, what I'm talking yeah. about?
1: So, absolutely, that's a story that captures people's attentions. And it certainly caught mine when I was uh, doing research for the book. So, um, as you alluded to, the history of the Coors boycott is sort of a history of intersecting and overlapping boycott struggles. Uh, they seem kind of separate, but people come together over the course of this narrative arc. But one of these key moments begins in 1973 in the Bay Area and Northern California. And um, this is the struggle between Teamsters Local 888. Which is a, a huge union in Northern California that organized basically all of the beer delivery drivers in the region. And it didn't, it was Coors drivers, but also they would deliver fall staff or Olympia or whatever. In 1973, they go on strike against uh, a collection or a group of beer distributors. And as you might guess, the lead offender in this whole thing and the holdout is uh, Coors, the, the Coors distributors. The Local 888 goes on strike. They're really struggling to make gains, uh, so they call a boycott. And this is, I think, in the summer of 1973. And a few months in, Teamster leadership brings in two outsiders to try to keep this campaign going, uh, Alan Baird and Andy Serkelis. And they're actually organizers with another Teamsters local in San Francisco, 921, which are newspaper delivery drivers. So Baird and Serkelis come in and they're like, you know, okay, you need to fix this boycott. You need to expand the boycott. So they start picketing stores, leafleting, going to meetings for other organizations. Alan Baird, who had long lived in the Castro district in San Francisco, he reached out to and connected with leaders in the growing uh, LGBT community like Harvey Milk and another guy named Howard Wallace. And then Andy Cirkelis, his kind of number two guy, reached out to people with the Black Panther Party, Native American Labor Advisory Council, Chicano organizations and the like. And at first, all of these different communities that they reach out to are pretty hesitant. Um, The Teamsters did not have a great reputation in the early, mid 1970s, not only because of racketeering hearings and corruption, but also because of a prolonged and vicious battle over representation of the farm workers. So the, the Teamsters come off to most people, especially activists of color, as a lily white, masculine conservative organization. And so they basically say, no, we're not really interested in helping you with this boycott unless you give us something, and and then we can kind of work together. So Baird and Serkelis, instead of reacting negatively or moving on, they actually worked to make really real connections and commitments with these different communities. Baird promised Harvey Milk that he'd get jobs for openly gay and lesbian folks in Teamsters unions, and he did that. Uh, Baird and Serkelis pushed for an affirmative action program, which was pretty rare among organized labor in this period. And the Teamsters were out on picket lines with United Farm Workers boycotters. So they were, um, in a sense, kind of crossing uh, picket lines for their bigger union in order to build solidarity in this movement. Uh, they, they brought sales down for the uh, Coors distributors in the region. There were reportedly layoffs at the Coors brewery. And this unlikely coalition is born um, from 1973 to 1975 or so. And one of the really exciting things about this story is that it gives rise to long-term friendships, especially between Alan Baird and Harvey Milk. Alan Baird went on to help organize uh, for Harvey Milk's political campaigns. And then it's worth mentioning that, I think it was last month in June, um, June of 2021, Alan Baird was honored at the beginning of Pride in San Francisco by Teamsters and LGBTQ organizations for his work on this movement. and you know, really being committed to LGBTQ rights for the majority of his lifetime. Oh,
0: that's so cool. That's awesome that he did that. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's one of the best stories, I swear. But there's a lot of stories in this book mm-hmm. and a lot of characters. All right, you mentioned a few that uh, they had great personalities, but is there a few other characters you like to talk about?
1: Yeah, um, I pretty much everyone in this book was really engaging and there's uh, a lot of funny things that happened along the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. sort of like, the ups and downs of a boycott movement. Um, you know, I've been lucky to talk with quite a few of these folks. Uh, some of them I wasn't able to. And one person who sticks out to me and who I became fascinated with is Howard Wallace. So I m- mentioned him um, a-, a couple minutes ago. He was an LGBTQ activist, uh, self-described socialist and feminist. He was a union member. He was a good friend of Harvey Milk, although they often disagreed about politics. Um, Wallace grew up in Denver, actually, and he moved to San Francisco at the age of 30. In both cities, he was an avid activist. He helped to found organizations like Stop the War Committees, Friends of SNCC. Um, he let, helped to lead or engaged in fights against police brutality and sexism. In the mid 1970s, he co founds an organization called Bay Area Gay Liberation or BAGL. So it's sort of a left wing kind of gay activist organization. and Sort of naturally, actually, he gets involved with the Coors boycott in San Francisco. Uh, He connects with Alan Baird on a picket line. And then in 1977, actually, when the brewery workers, Local 366, were on strike again, he helped to coordinate boycott activities in San Francisco. And he did so really for the next 10 years at least. Uh, And he's, I never met him, um, but he donated his personal papers to the San Francisco Public Library. I think it was like 70 linear feet or something. And um, I always like talking about him because in going through all of these boxes, I felt like I really got to know him without ever meeting him. He kept everything, his letters, his notes. In the 1980s, the Coors Brewing Company sued him and another organizer, um, actually trying accusing them of violating the Sherman Antitrust Act. That didn't work out that well for the company, but... um, Howard was deposed, and so he kept all of his depositions, and they're like,, you know, all of these boxes of him kind of arguing with the court's attorneys uh, and he had an entire box of pictures of his dogs, so throughout his life he had Boston Terriers, and so he mm. kept photos of every single Boston Terrier he ever had. Uh, and I think that's just a good example of the kind of things you find in an archive to to understand and illuminate the life of an activist yeah uh, so so he was an outspoken. A uh, principled guy he had a lot of energy, and he really embodied coalition in his life and work. And so I think he's kind of an unsung figure in both labor and queer history. So I would like to um, elevate and share his story
0: oh, absolutely. <clears throat> that is the um the dream of every historian and archivist, <laughs> someone who keeps everything and makes an agreement saying you can't throw anything away, including the, dog, the the dog photos. yeah, but true. that is that is a true, I guess you could say, leftist activist. Mm-hmm you know, constantly getting involved. So you mentioned the big strike. This is, I, I, this, this is April 77 was the local 66 goes out again, 366. I'm sorry. Um, what was the reason for this strike? Um, was it the same previous or something different? And it seems that Coors is getting a little more, I guess, savvy to all the boycotts. Was this the beginning of the end of this? That's a good question. So, well, yeah, let
1: me, um, fill folks in on this strike. So After the 1957 strike, which I mentioned up at the top, Local 366 was an embattled but evolving union. Um, Between 57 and 1977, they ended up with a contract every two years that included more and more reasons for discipline and discharge. This included the polygraph tests, which eventually became pretty much mandatory if you had any grievance uh, or any conflict with with management. There were restrictions on joining other strikes on Corsa's campus, uh, mandatory search and seizure uh, regulations. So they kind of increasingly, this union has a contract that is not good for them. But the union is becoming more militant and active. Uh, The company had hired on younger guys, Vietnam veterans, eventually because of pressure from activists and, and the government, they hired people of color and women. And and so the union was becoming more militant, actually. I mean, militant being kind of a relative term here. In 1976, Local 366 won a supermajority in a representation election under a very weird Colorado law, the Colorado Labor Peace Act. And so this allowed them to actually say, you know, our union is strong. Um, The workers in the the brewery want us to be representing them. But then in the spring of 77, contract negotiations were again at a standstill. And at this point, the things that were really the sticking points were quality of work type provisions and a general hostility on the part of the company's representative. So even though 366 had won this representation election, the company was basically like, we're not really going to negotiate with you on this contract. And so all these tensions boiled over. In April of 77, the company just implemented its own contract unilaterally. And so the union went on strike and really quickly they got authorization from the AFL-CIO to call a boycott. And, and this strike ended up lasting until December 1978. Sometimes I can count the, the months in my head, but not this morning. <laughs> uh, and, and what happened was the organizers, especially uh, one guy, Dave Sickler, who had been working in the plant since the early 60s, they knew that the company would be basically intractable in, these nego- in, in negotiations and in a strike. So they decide to send boycott committees across the West. They're kind of emulating the farm workers approach. Um, Sickler sends organizers to Los Angeles, San Francisco, Austin, and these places become key hubs of boycott activity. But as you note, the strike is certainly the beginning of the end uh, for Local 366 because the strike ended in December of 1978 with a decertification. The company had replaced strikers and got them to vote. Uh, in a representation election, and so they ousted the union. and this is through and this
0: weird Colorado law that not, not
1: that one actually. that was just a regular NLRB mm-hmm. decertification election, uh, which are they're on the rise in this period in the 1970s. I think they're you know one symptom of weakening of labor power because certainly Coors's labor attorney is sort of pushing the company to go for a decertification election once they've replaced worker replaced strikers. Um, and it basically reverses the wins that the, the the brewery workers had had under that Colorado Labor Peace Act election. Right. So that is sort of the, the end um, of the union, to be sure. And I think it exemplifies the power of the company in pushing back against activists and strikers. But I also see it as the beginning of something new, because after the strike ended, the boycott continued, and the boycott becomes national and much more radical as a result. And continues for at least 10 more years.
0: Yeah. uh, um, Boycotts are kind of like a long train. It's hard to get Mm -hmm. going, but then you get going, you can't stop them. And that's, that's what it is. How how did it keep getting legs even in the eighties and nineties?
1: Yeah. So you're right. Boycotts are difficult to organize. Uh, They take a lot of work, but once they get going, they do have momentum. Um, I think The key in the 1980s and 1990s, even after Local 366 is defunct, is that there's still a network of committed organizers um, who are engaging in long-term organizing, clear messaging, and linked up with lots of activists across the country. Uh, In the 80s, even with the strike over, the AFL-CIO kept on one boycott organizer, Dave Sickler. Uh, At the time, he was also leading the Los Angeles Orange County Organizing Committee. And he had a small budget to organize the boycott, but he also, more importantly, had ties with other labor, Chicano, and queer organizations across the country. And so they could basically prepare for anything. If Coors was going to sponsor some you know, race in California, or if they were going to push into new distribution markets in the Northeast, these networks were ready for them. And, and so I think these networks and Dave Sickler's know-how and his familiarity with boycott organizing allowed for the boycott to continue. The other thing is that the Coors family continued to put fuel on the fire. I mean, one, by 1978, with the decertification, it was clear that the company was a union buster. They'd actually busted a union. So for labor activists, there was no incentive for them to ever drink Coors as a result. and They'd continue the pressure. But other things happened in the 80s and 90s. Uh, 1984, Bill Coors uh, makes some really incendiary racialized comments about African-Americans. And so that um, amplifies the boycott, especially among communities of color. In the 1990s, the family's Private Foundation, it's a philanthropic foundation called the Castle Rock Foundation, was linked to anti-gay, family values, culture wars type organizations. And so this also kind of keeps the boycott going. Um, and through the 80s and 90s, progressive activists were really attuned to anti-Coors arguments and aware of the Coors family's links to the far right. And so that that keeps people invested in this battle.
0: Yeah, def- definitely. I mean, through your book, I find out certain things that I didn't know about Coors with the Heritage Foundation. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. once I saw that, I was like, no wonder. There's, there's, there's many different other activists are going to get involved with that. And they kept it going. But as I always know, with any kind of organization, it, even like a good union, it thrives on its swag, right? All the little tchotchkes and all the little things, buttons and t-shirts. I had my button, uh, Boycott course. So um, there's so much ephemera with the cores boycott. I mean, how do you think all the flyers, buttons, t-shirts, et cetera, influenced the communities that were targeted? And, you know, I'm going to ask you a big question too. And how can this be replicated in a TikTok world?
1: Ooh, that's a tough question. I know. I, I- uh, it's a good one, though. So, I mean, first, yeah, the ephemera of this movement, I've always just been really excited about and really invested in. So,
0: I mean, it's so creative.
1: Uh, boycott- oh, yeah. So the, the boycotters put together buttons. They had bumper stickers that were bilingual and often had um, really sort of time specific jokes on them. They had great T-shirts. Stamps that you would put on envelopes, and one of my favorites, actually in terms of its creativity, was these little thank you cards that they would stick on Coors cases in stores, and it would say like "Thank you for supporting bigotry and discrimination." Uh, to, to and they would rile up liquor store owners, and they'd rile up the company. Um, <laughs> and you know, I've written more about ephemera outside of the book than in the book, but. One thing I think is important is that ephemera really invites people to take physical action and join in that action with others. So even though it's not actual organizing, right, you're not having necessarily an organizing conversation, ephemera and buttons and bumper stickers are silent organizers. So putting a sticker on your car was a signal not only of commitment to the movement, uh, but because of the political implications of the boycott, you were stating something much bigger about yourself in doing so. And it, Help the boycott seem ubiquitous. It was kind of a constant reminder to people. A lot of boycotters in oral history interviews that I've done or that others have done have talked about, like, people would always stop me if I had a bumper sticker on my car. So it created a buzz, and it also invited people to talk about the boycott. Uh, in terms of the, the question you asked about TikTok, so I've thought a lot about this. So, like, how can physical ephemera trans- transfer over to the world of social media? And one, I think TikTok itself is just a new form of ephemerality, right? I mean, it disappears, I think. I don't know. I don't have TikTok. But, um, (laughs) uh, you know, these social media posts are ephemeral in, you know, basically the way that we engage with them and they go away over time. And in the 1970s, there were some cultural critics who made basically the same statements that we often make about social media in the way that they assessed bumper stickers. So they saw bumper stickers and buttons as performative, meaningless, not at all the same as marching in the streets. And they thought that this was some indication that activism had died in some way. Um, So I think the same kind of arguments could be leveled against buttons as are leveled against TikTok. Um, So I think that's all true, but These things, whether or not, whether they exist on the internet or sort of physically in someone's hand or on their car, they're at their most effective when they're thought of as supplements to other forms of action. So I think both kinds of ephemera are good in that they remind people of what's at stake. They plant a seed. Hopefully they get someone to turn out, but they need to be combined, I think, with other forms of organizing, you know, physical Actions, one-on-one conversations, and so they amplify the effect of of a movement.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, think about with a um, red for Ed, and all is mm-hmm. going across in West Virginia and and Oklahoma and the other states, and all of a sudden on your Facebook feed and other feeds, you have the someone planted the bad the red badge. I support this. I support. That. Then you get people saying, "Hey, let's all get together and take a picture with our hands up and we're wearing mm-hmm. red." Same kind of thing. You're absolutely right. Same kind of thing. Here's a badge. Here's something to keep active. Here's something to spread it so that people will ask questions. What is this all about? What does that mean? So it continues on right. in that form. Like my daughter has actually a bumper sticker that you shine your, your, your phone on, you know, take a mm-hmm. picture of, and it goes to a protest song. Oh, really? Yeah, it's pretty cool.
1: I love that. That's really cool. Yeah, actually. <laughs> okay, that's super innovative. Yeah. Uh, wow, okay. Yeah, right. Like, you know, they invite you to be involved in some way. It's not the same as like standing on a picket line. Um, but the thing about a boycott is the, the idea is that you can be in solidarity anywhere, mm-hmm. uh, as long as you're rejecting the product so that the ephemera actually facilitate that kind of long distance solidarity.
0: Right, right. Now, follow up kind of question on that. Um, you know, my big memories are the great the great boycotts, the Coors boycott, I was, I was involved with it, and with it as a child, not really knowing what it was, but you still, I, my family just did it. But, and the last big consumer boycott that I can remember is the strawberries from the farm workers. And even that was short-lived, mm-hmm. but now you have Hobby Lobby boycotts, the Yingling boycotts that didn't really carry any legs. Um, can there ever be another consumer boycott like the ones I just mentioned?
1: I think that there can be. I think I'm an optimist in this. Um, the boycott or the act of non consumption has a really long history in the United States. It's a time tested tool. It's one among many that the left and labor have used. And it's evolved and survived in spite of many attempts to get rid of it, to basically outlaw it. I mean, think in the early 20th century, uh, there were so many injunctions against boycotts, but yet the Tool still survives. And, and so, I th- one, I think that the boycott will always evolve in some way to adapt to current political, social, labor conditions because it's an accessible tool it's an ad- and it's also adaptable. So, I don't think we've seen the end of it. Um, that said, there are kind of two caveats or challenges. I mean, one, like we've discussed, boycotts are really hard work, <laughs> it's not enough to say, all right, I'm going to boycott X company and everyone just come along and do it. Um, Coors boycotters learned and then insisted that a boycott has to be well planned and organized and often combined with other tools. Uh, you have to lay the groundwork for a boycott and also have a conversation about the key reasons for boycotting and then when and why it would end at some point. This was a problem for Coors boycotters. Sometimes they didn't agree upon the end point. And that weakened their movement overall. Um, But something else that I've been thinking about often, and this is a point that's been raised by other folks in their work, is that one fault in present day boycotts is that they give preference to the grievances of the consumer rather than the worker or the producer. Uh, I think Matt Garcia says this really eloquently in his book, uh, From the Jaws of Victory. So I think the boycotts you mentioned, Grapes, uh, Farrah Pants boycott, the Coors boycott, all of these, they focus primarily on the grievances of the shop floor and the workers. Um, And and so I think the question for us today is how do you balance the concerns of the consumer and the worker in a consumer movement? Um, Is it possible to do that? I don't know, but I think that sometimes, especially like with Hobby Lobby or the Goya boycott, the concern and the grievance is primarily located in the individual consumer than a concern for the worker.
0: Almost kind of got done with the Amazon workers where yeah. you had the issues on the shop floor, but also people could see what Amazon has been doing to mom and pops as Walmart had already done, but Amazon was expanding out almost. I mean, right? so ingrained in our world and <laughs> we still was like, Oh, let's buy it on Amazon. You know? Yeah.
1: Well, and the interesting thing about that was, consumers called for a boycott on Amazon and the organizers on the ground in Bessemer said, no, we do not want a boycott because I think it would scare it was going to scare workers away. And um, I think it was at the Lacha conference this year that uh, one of the organizers from the Bessemer struggle spoke and he said something that I really agree with is that a boycott is good for when you're in negotiations. It's not good when you're just trying to get recognition uh, when you're on strike, because it gives the employer too much, to, too much fuel to really divide workers.
0: And, and that's, the, that's, the, that's the problem with social media. I mean, mm-hmm. before social media, we would know only a little bit of what was going on. Communication was still a little slow. So by the time a boycott got to the national recognition, the union was there. Things were f- formulated. This was a consumer coming out and saying, we're going to boycott without... Consulting with even with the union or the organizers yeah. or anything like that, yeah, yeah, that's exactly true, yeah, yeah, so anyway, enough of our babbling let's get to the big <laughs> question that we always love to ask on our podcast, and we'd love to hear about what collections you used at the Reuther, but also you did a lot of research. you went all over the place, so we would love to know that kind of stuff too, but also, what do you use here at the Reuther library?
1: yeah, so at the Reuther, I worked uh, with a number of union and president collections. Um, so me AFT, UAW, and a lot of your collections related to the United Farm Workers. And in all of these, I found correspondence with Coors Boycott organizers, as well as expressions of support for the boycott. Um, so this was one challenge in researching about this movement is that there's no like one key collection for the Coors Boycott movement. There are some small ones. For the most part, I would find maybe like one folder. Uh, If I got lucky, there'd be like five folders. And so I'd kind of be trying to just find little hints of the boycott across different collections. But for unions associated with the AFL-CIO or AFL-CIO unions, they all engaged in the boycott in some way. Uh, They had letters they would send to their members. They exchanged correspondence with Dave Sickler. So that was exciting. I could see that in the collections that you had. Uh, But one collection that really sticks out to me still are the Bob Barber papers. Uh, so Barber was a journalist in California. He wrote for the United Farm Workers paper, El Malcriado, and he interviewed a huge number of farmworker, Teamster, and other California labor organizers. And he ended up interviewing Andy Serkellis, who's involved in the San Francisco Boycott a Coalition we talked about before. He interviewed him a number of times and kept handwritten notes, kept drafts of all of his articles. And these sources were really key to understanding Serkelis' view of the boycott, the strategies that he and Alan Baird used, and really importantly, the tensions between him and other teamsters and higher-ups in his union. Uh, because in the end, the teamsters kind of squashed their boycott effort. Uh, so th- this was a really important set of sources for me because there, there weren't that many sources elsewhere that really got to Andy Serkelis' voice. Um, so the Barber papers, I would highly encourage people to check out. There's real, a lot of really great stuff in there.
0: That's cool. So so where else did you go and find things? I mean, all right. We have Henry Roth's papers here dealing with AFT, but you use mm-hmm. Henry Roth in Colorado, right?
1: Yeah. So uh, Herrick Roth, I think. Herrick Roth, his name. sorry. Or, yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so he was a Colorado labor leader. Yeah. He was uh, engaged with the AFT for some time. He was president of the Colorado Labor Council. In 1972, I think he got in a huge uh, fight with uh, George Meany uh, because he did not support the AFL-CIO's presidential um, nomination. Uh, and I think that Roth was expelled from the AFL-CIO. There's some longstanding battle. and um, So he's this really interesting character. He had his own TV show in Colorado about labor. Uh, so I was able to look. I used your uh, collection at the Ruther. His collections are also at the Denver Public Library. And uh, that, he's a fascinating character, if anyone wants a, a, a project related to Colorado labor. Uh, a couple other places that I went to, I mean, I went all over because as I mentioned, sometimes I just find traces of evidence, but for labor historians, I wanna give special recognition or thanks to the Labor Archives and Research Center at San Francisco State University, they have the collections of the San Francisco Labor Council, as well as bound volumes of the People's World publication, which is a communist publication out of San Francisco, and bound volumes of other labor publications. The Tamamint Library at NYU has a lot of collections of the Colorado Labor Council. They have the newspapers, um, the United Brewery Workers. They have uh, items related to that. Uh, the Teamsters Labor History Center at George Washington University was also a really great resource. Um, So, I mean, pretty much every place I went to had something unique to offer to the story because in dealing with a vast coalition like this, there are so many different voices and organizations who wanted to tap into the boycott. And so I had to be kind of creative sometimes in, in that archival research.
0: Well, it definitely, um, Here's your research was worthwhile because you put out a wonderful book. It was a lot of fun oh, to thank read. Thank you so much. And thank you got you. some great pictures and ephemera in there. Yeah. You know, so, so we really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Dan. It was a pleasure. Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library and Archives of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers are Dan Galadner and Troy Eller-English. The music was composed by Bart Bilmer. And of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. For more information, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan.
0: Goodbye, Dan. Hello, hello, beer, beer, cores. (laughs) Wars. no
1: (laughs) there's still an echo
0: damn damn damn
1: um can we practice saying interdisciplinary nope
0: Nope. it ain't gonna happen fair enough dr. Allison Bratley is an assistant professor of history and director of honors and interdisciplinary initiative at the University of uh, let's start that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute.
0: <laughs> Is there <it> booing?
1: <laughs> no, there's no booing. I could program in booing, though.
0: You should. So you can leave in my mistakes and boo me. Yes. Yes. That's <laughs> very nice. Oh, the power. <laughs> <laughs>